Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Please help us as we try to understand this um, dreadful passage in many ways. Help us to, to know you better. Help us to respond rightly to the truth of your anger and judgment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, a popular book out at the moment. Um, when I bought it the other day, someone else was buying it at exactly the same time in Dimmicks. It's quite popular. It's by a guy called Richard Dawkins. It's called The God Delusion. Is anybody aware of the book that's uh, around at the moment? Well, in the book, Dawkins, so it's, it's a book which is trying to encourage people to be atheists. And uh, in the book, Dawkins describes God in this way. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Strong words, don't you think? Why doesn't he tell us what he really thinks? And, and I think our natural reaction is, um, as Christians, is to say, no, 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 no way, that's, that's not right. That's not the God that I know. The God that I know is faithful and, and, and loving and just. The problem is, you look at a book like Ezekiel in the Bible, and it gives Richard Dawkins plenty of good ammunition. I mean, so far, it's been chapter after chapter after chapter of blood and guts and gore and violence and threats. Remember, as Ezekiel writes, it's 592 BC. I read about this chapter. The, the Jewish city of Jerusalem, it's been defeated once by, by Babylon, the nation of Babylon. Some of the Jews have been taken into exile, but at this point, Jerusalem is still standing. And most of the Jews are, are hoping and praying that God will save her. But God has said to Ezekiel, it's not going to happen. Jerusalem is doomed. I'm going to wipe it out completely. Uh, let, let me just pick a couple of the quotes, some of those choice, nice quotes that we've seen so far, to give you a sense of the God that we are dealing with. God says to Jerusalem, In your midst, fathers will eat their children, and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Well, listen to what God commands his angels about Jerusalem. Kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children. God says, I will slay your people. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. God hasn't exactly been holding back about it, has he? He is livid with anger at his people, and they are going to be slaughtered, man, woman, and child. It's violent stuff. Vindictive, jealous, bloodthirsty stuff. Infanticidal, genocidal stuff. So what do we do? What, what do we do with a God like this, the God of the Bible? How, how do we respond? Well, Richard Dawkins' answer is clear. 
A God like this is totally unacceptable to the modern mind. We need to reject him as bad fiction and become atheists. But what happens for those of us who are convinced this God isn't fiction? What do we do with this angry, judgmental God? I think the next couple of chapters in Ezekiel can help us. Because in these next chapters, God gives us insight into his motives. He tells us something of why he is so angry with his people. In chapters 15 to 17, God is still talking about how he's going to destroy Jerusalem. But this time, instead of just talking about it or getting Ezekiel to act it out or something, Ezekiel uses three illustrations to make his point. The first illustration is in chapter 15. God talks about the wood of a vine. He says, the wood of a vine, it's useless for anything except firewood. You can't make anything with it. And then once it's been charred or burned, it's even more useless. You can't do a thing with it. You just chuck it back on the fire again. Ezekiel says, the people of Jerusalem are like the wood of a vine. They are useless to God. And now they've been burned once by the Babylonian defeat, they're even more useless. So they'll be destroyed. Chapter 15 and verse 6. Chapter 15 and verse 6. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they've come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. So there's the first explanation of why Jerusalem will be destroyed. They've been unfaithful to God, and so they are useless to God. Like the wood of a vine, God has no use for them anymore. And so God will throw them into the fire. Now, you might not find that very comforting. But the illustration gives us significant insight into our relationship with God, our standing before God and God's judgment. You see, God made us. God owns us. We ought to be useful to God. And if we refuse to be useful to God, well, our maker has the right to unmake us. And don't think this is just an Old Testament concept either, because this is here in the New Testament as well. For example, uh, the writer to the Hebrews talks about people who, who put their trust in Jesus, become Christians, but then chuck it in, fall away. He says people like that are useless to God. He compares them to land, which is useless, and he says good only for burning. Let me quote from Hebrews 6, which, if the technology works, will come up on the screen. Beautiful. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now look at this. Look at this uh, illustration. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Now, useless land will be burned. It's not the way we normally like to think of God. It's not the way we normally like to think of ourselves. It may not even be the, the way we, we, we want to think about God or ourselves, but, but you've got to say it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
We are God's creation. We belong to him. If a potter makes a pot and the pot is useless, squash the pot make one that is useful. God gave us life. God made us to love him and obey him and worship him. We refuse to be useful. Well, the God who gave us life has got every right to take it away. The second illustration is in chapter 16. God compares Jerusalem to a woman. As a baby, she was left abandoned uh, uh, to die. Pick it up in verse 4, chapter 16 now, and verse 4. Talking about Jerusalem. On the, way you were, on, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now, Jerusalem was like an abandoned baby girl, a bit like that uh, baby Catherine on the front page of the paper on Tuesday. God, here in the story illustrated as a man, finds the baby, takes pity. He rescues her. He, he looks after her. And, and, and when she grows up, he doesn't make her his slave, as would normally done in that, in, in that kind of situation. No, no, he, he makes her his wife. Verse 8. Verse 8. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And as his wife, God, God adores Jerusalem. He, he, he lavishes her with his generosity. He gives her every good thing. Verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. Sounds like a Chatswood husband, doesn't it? Um, I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and I put a ring on your nose, maybe going too far there, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. Amazing picture, don't you think? An abandoned baby kicking around in her blood, about to die, now a queen. Now a queen, all through the, the, the generosity of her husband. And you'd expect her to be grateful. You'd expect her to be a faithful, loving, diligent wife. But not Jerusalem. Instead, uh, instead of being faithful to her husband, Jerusalem prostituted herself to idols. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, that the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you, you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as a fragrant incense before them. That is what happened. 
declares the sovereign, sovereign Lord. And she didn't stop at unfaithfulness, this wife. She even murdered her husband's children, sacrificed them to idols. Verse 20. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. In the next section, Jerusalem, uh, God then talks about Jerusalem's prostitution uh, with the Egyptians. It's verse 26. The Assyrians, verse 28, and the Babylonians, verse 29. And now we're not talking so much about idolatry, but, but about the alliances that they made with other nations and, uh, where they accepted their gods as part of the alliance. God talks about how Jerusalem actually paid them for the privilege of prostituting herself to them. And that's referring to the tribute that Jerusalem had to pay to enter alliances with these nations. Now pick it up, verse 32. 32. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favours. Well, how would you feel? How would you feel if you were God? Out of sheer grace... You have saved the life of this abandoned baby. You've provided for her. You've, you've made her your wife. You've lavished her with every good thing. And in return, she becomes a prostitute. She takes the good stuff you've given her, uh, the money, and she spends it on her illicit affairs. And she murders the children she has born to you. How would you feel? Oh, I guess it depends on whether you love your wife. I suppose if you didn't love her, you'd say, oh, well, some bloke's sleeping with my wife. Good luck to her. Good luck to him. I suppose it depends on whether you love your children. Oh, well, my wife's killed my kids. At least I get a decent night's sleep. If you don't love them, you won't care. But God's not like that. God has adored his wife. God has doted on his wife. God passionately loves his children. So how would you feel? You'd be livid, wouldn't you? You'd be ropeable. If you have any love for your wife, if you've got any love for your children, look, if you've got any self-respect, you will be furious. That's how God feels about Jerusalem. He is full of wrath and jealous anger, and Jerusalem will suffer the consequences. Verse 35, 35. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I'll gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they'll all see all your nakedness. I'll sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. In the last part of the, of the um, chapter, God compares Jerusalem to, to Samaria and Sodom, uh, two places that he previously destroyed. He says, Jerusalem, you are far worse than they were. You make them look righteous by comparison. And so he says, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Don't you go standing up and whinging that I've got no right to be angry. You ought to be ashamed. 
Okay, there's our second explanation. There's another reason God will destroy Jerusalem. Their unfaithfulness makes him jealous. Again, not just an Old Testament concept. Now, God says the same sort of stuff to us Christians in the New Testament. Now, for example, there's James chapter 4. Thanks, Steve, up on the screen. James is talking here to Christians who think they can put their trust in Jesus but then go flirting with the world at the same time. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Thanks. God loves his people. And like a loving husband, he is rightly jealous when we won't return his love. He is rightly jealous when we are unfaithful to him. Now, Richard Dawkins doesn't buy this. Uh, he calls it the, uh, the tragedy farce of God's maniacal jealousy against alternative gods. Uh, but I've got to say, as a husband and a dad, I, I can really feel God's heart here. Now, praise God, I have a very loyal wife and four thriving children. But boy, if Carmelina started sleeping around, if she killed the kids, I would be angry. And I don't think I'd, be, I'd react too well to be told I've got no right to be angry and jealous about it. If someone sleeping with my wife started talking about the tragedy farce of my maniac with jealousy, I reckon I'd punch him on the nose. <clears throat> I can understand why God is so angry, can't you? If he weren't angry, there'd be something drastically wrong with him. He would have no love. He wouldn't even have any self-respect. When it's put like this, I reckon God is right to be angry. And so the point for us is this. Sinners like us should not be questioning arrogantly God's right to be angry. Sinners like us ought to be ashamed of ourselves. The uh, third illustration is in chapter 17. This time we're told a parable. Uh, an eagle takes the top of a cedar and plants it. The eagle then takes some seeds and plants a vine. The vine heads off towards another eagle, so the first eagle will rip up the vine. Strange story. Um, but it's a direct parallel with what's happened in Jerusalem. The first eagle is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He took uh, King Jehoiachin of Judah, the top of the cedar, off to Babylon. He then planted King Zedekiah, the vine, as king in Jerusalem. But now King Zedekiah is trying to form an allegiance with Pharaoh of Egypt, the second eagle. And so the message is King Nebuchadnezzar, the first eagle, will come and rip him up, destroy him. Now Ezekiel explains the story in verse 11. But notice, notice the reason why God is going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to destroy King Zedekiah of Jerusalem. It's because... It's because Zedekiah made a promise before God to Nebuchadnezzar. He made a binding oath before God to be subject to Nebuchadnezzar. He said something like, May God destroy me if I ever break this oath to you. Well, now Zedekiah is breaking the oath, and so God will do to him according to the oath. God is just, and he will do what Zedekiah said. Have a look at verse 11. 17, 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say to this rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, 
The king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land so that the kingdom would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping his treaty. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, he shall die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose treaty he broke. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great horde will be of no help to him in war when ramps are built and siege works erected to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Because he had given his hand in pledge and yet did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, As surely as I live, I will bring down on his head my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. Uh, So there's the third explanation of why God will destroy Jerusalem and King Zedekiah. God is just. Zedekiah made an oath. He broke it. And so God will do what the oath said. It's simple. Plain justice. Zedekiah gets what he deserves. Again, that's, that's not just an Old Testament concept, the idea of God's righteous and just anger. Uh, when God comes in anger to judge in the New Testament, it's always with justice. Have a, have a look, thanks, Steve, at how it's put in Romans chapter 2, up on the screen there. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. But have a look at this kind of day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. Thanks. God's God's anger will prove to be just. We, we, We will see it at the last day. God will repay people according to what they've done. His anger will come when his righteous judgment is revealed. No one is going to get what they don't deserve on that day of God's anger. God will do what is right. God will do what is right. All right, well, um, Richard Dawkins might not like it. In fact, probably most of us don't like it. But I think these chapters help us to see the truth, don't they? The real God is perfectly entitled to be angry. As our maker, he's got every right to destroy his useless creation. As our husband... He's got every right to be angry at our unfaithfulness. As our judge, he's got every right to give us what we deserve. There's no point complaining that God has no right to be angry. It's just not appropriate for people like us, people who won't give the God who made us the love and honour he deserves and demands. It's not appropriate. And there's... There's no point pretending that God is fiction either. Uh, Richard Dawkins might try it, but it didn't work for Jerusalem. Uh, A few years after Ezekiel told them what God would do, God did it in history. He did what Ezekiel said to the letter. 586 BC, God did destroy Jerusalem completely. That's why people kept the book of Ezekiel. That's why we've got the book of Ezekiel today, because he proved to be a true prophet. What he said actually happened in the future, not fiction. This God of Ezekiel is very real. His anger is very real. And as the New Testament tells us, a day of judgment and of wrath is still coming. A day when we will all have to stand before God and give account 
We need to do something about God's anger, not whinge about it, not pretend it isn't there, but somehow escape it. And that's why this message about Jesus is such good news, isn't it? Uh, That's why when we talk about uh, Jesus saving us, we're talking about something very meaningful and very real. The Bible talks about Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And that's, that's what he was doing when he was here. That's why he was dying on the cross. That's why he rose again. That's why he came. He came to, to satisfy God's anger and rescue us from God's anger. Now when we rely on him, it is possible for us to be rescued from this righteous anger that is coming. God's anger is real. God's anger is right. Ezekiel made that very clear to Israel. It is still true today. And so I reckon we should not go with Richard Dawkins on this. I reckon we should not be standing up like arrogant ants and shaking our fists at God and saying he's got no right to be angry with us. I think instead with with shame and with sorrow, we should confess that we have not served our maker, that we have not loved our husband, that we have been unjust and wrong. I think instead we should put our trust in the Lord Jesus who rescues us from God's right anger. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father and our Maker and our Judge, we acknowledge before you that we, um, we don't give you the love and honour and worship that you deserve. We often live as if you don't exist. We often turn aside after other things and make idols of them. Our Father, we're so sorry. We're sorry for when we would even question your anger and justice. Father, please forgive us. Please fill us with your spirit so that we know the truth about you. Please help us to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you so much for him and for what he has done to save us. In his name we pray. Amen.